Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. All right, NYCC Thursday, Artist Alley here with Brian Bucciolato, writer of Detective Comics. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Hey there, man. Uh, co-writer. You know, co-writer yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, how's it going? It's going pretty good, man. It's uh, crazy. Our like, it was like our tenth show or something. We interviewed you when you when you were co-writing the Flash with Francis, obviously. Um, and now you're. It's three years later. You're writing Batman. What has this whole crazy journey been like? Uh, it's been kind of whirlwind. I know it's been three years and a lot of comic books and a lot of, you know, sleepless nights uh, with a lot of work, but it, it seems like it's gone really fast. Um, obviously, overnight, my persona changed from being a colorist to being a writer, and that sort of was a huge game changer for me. So uh, uh, I couldn't be happier with how my career is going and, and how I'm able to tell the stories that I've been wanting to tell for a long time, but uh, I didn't have the ability to to do on, on a large scale before Flash, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you, you, you were on Flash for two years? Two and a half years? Uh, you know, uh, I think if you add up the Rogue's Rebellion and the annuals and the, you know, the specialty books, I did over 40 books. Wow. Either co-wrote or wrote 40 issues of yeah. Flash, you know, like and Flash material. Yeah. So what was it like leaving it? You know, when you had to finally you left it behind? I mean, I know you're going to Batman, but, you know, what was it like to leave the Flash? I mean, it, it was definitely bittersweet. I mean, if you get the opportunity to work on Detective, which is the flagship title of DC, and you know, DC named after it, you know, so, uh, you do it, you know. And we, we wanted a new challenge. We actually actively uh, went after it because uh, we had been on for three years uh, on Flash. And so, you know, we wanted something new. But in the same token, we ushered him into the New 52. So the sense of pr- propriety for Flash, uh, it was unlike anything I'd experienced before. I mean, the guy's been around for 50-something years, right? But... I think we felt like he was ours, and uh, it was tough to see somebody else start writing stories with Patty and you know and and uh, and Iris and the Rogues and and so uh, I haven't been able to uh, bring myself to read the issues, you know like like I you know uh, I bought the issues and I, and I support what they're doing, but I, like it's was a little it's a little new. I, I I don't know maybe maybe in a few months or a year or whatever I'll end up reading it and see how it's going, but. Uh, uh, it's almost like like a divorce, and like like you know DC got to keep those children, and then like we got married to a a younger, hotter blonde or something. I don't know. <laughs> and so uh, I, I'd say uh, Rogue's Rebellion, great miniseries, great uh, tie into the whole Forever Evil situation. What's it like writing a villain book for one thing? I mean, I know they're not quite they're not the traditional villains, but a villain book and writing a, a tie in to such a big event. Well, it was it was very challenging in the beginning because. I had a lot of parameters, and luckily uh, Jeff uh, really helped me fit my story within what he was doing early on. And then uh, once I locked into what I was, what I was able to do within the context of the greater story, I had the freedom to do what I wanted. And so for me, it was really about the you know the characters and about exploring 
who the rogues are and who they are to each other. Because I think, you know, when you have a villain in a book and they operate as a, as a, as a team, they tend to have one voice and it's really hard for people to understand, you know, what's the difference between Heatwave and Mirror Master and, you know, uh, Trickster. So I think when, when you get a book like, you know, a miniseries where you can focus solely on them, you can reveal the layers, you know, like, you know, Trickster is very different from Heatwave. Heatwave is very different from Mirror Master. And for me, you know, uh, it helped me really define who I thought Mirror Master was because to me he was the actual he was the hero of the book because Captain Cold gets pulled out of uh, you know gets pulled out of the series because he's going to the Forever Evil series. So to me that you know that was a challenge because that wasn't my choice. But then I was able to take that opportunity and do something that that I really was you know that I really uh, enjoyed and really uh, am proud of with Mirror Master. Yeah, absolutely. It was great to see those guys. I think that they're, they're some of the most, I think next to Batman, obviously the Flash has, I think, the, the most interesting rogues gallery. And they might even be more interesting because they're not, n- none of them want to see the world burn, right? They just want to be better off and they just don't want to do it honestly, you know? Yeah. So it's great to see in that book. Whenever you look at announced, I was like, this is going to be really interesting because, you know, heroes like, villains like Captain Cold, they don't want the world to get taken over they just want to get some money and they want to have a you know a good life um so it was really cool to see them kind of almost painted as heroes just because they were so, they were so different than the than the people the actual villains of the story you know? right well yeah and, and also the fact that they got to go from city to city and see what other villains were like they really looked like heroes in comparison because you know i mean in some ways they're like like classic western outlaws you know they, they they'll rob the train but you want to root for them because they don't want to hurt anybody and they just you know what they want to clock in do their job which is stealing and then clock out have some beers and have some fun so it's really easy to get behind the rogues yeah, absolutely. and it's a great too i mean obviously we don't know what's going to happen yet with the series but uh the tv show just started obviously and it looks like they're really going for that stuff like they've already announced captain cold you know they're already talking about the rogues in a big way as a as a former flash writer is that exciting for you to hear oh absolutely i haven't seen the uh the pilot yet uh but I, from the trailers, it looks amazing, and, and everything that I've seen, uh, I think it's going to be fantastic. Like, like I'm really looking forward to watching the series, and as a fan, sitting back and watching uh, the series. Today, I saw online they had a, a reverse Flash image, and like that's crazy. You know, like he's he's like graded from yellow to black, and I was, I was like, I bet you the studio and Jeff had an argument about what he was going to look like, and I bet Jeff was like yellow, and this, and the studio was like black and so they met in the middle that's what it looked like to me but I think it looks awesome and I can't wait to see it yeah, absolutely I never thought I'd see Weather Wizard on a TV show it's, it's crazy you know it's, it's a whole crazy time because like now everyone knows who Deathstroke is and it's like I never thought I'd live in that world where anyone knew who Deathstroke was ever me but tell me about Batman man what has it been like writing Detective Comics um, oh, right, Detective Comics, sorry. No, that's all good. <laughs> uh, you stand corrected, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been ridiculously fun. Um, uh, he's, he's such a different type of character. He, he brings a whole different challenge. Uh, Francis and I had the, uh, the honor of bringing Flash uh, into the New 52 and sort of resetting all the mythology. So stepping into uh, you know, Detective three years after the New 52, like all that heavy lifting's been done. Like Scott has done you know, Zero Year and all kinds of stuff. So all, all we need to do is concentrate on the story. And so for Francis and I, it's about going back to the detective in Detective Comics, working with the mystery and sort of unfolding something in a slower, uh, uh, more interesting, you know, noirish pace. So, like, it's been it's been amazing. I'm having a great time. I know Francis is. I mean, it, it was in The Flash and it's also in Detective. I think it it's, it's very cool to see because obviously Francis is co-writer and he's, he's an artist 
and obviously you have a, a colorist background, so you got, you understand art, and it, it's there's definitely a, a a marriage between the two in the book that it doesn't exist in a lot of other books, just because the way your team is laid out. Um, I, 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 is there? I, I don't know if that just happens naturally, or is there some sort of like? Is there a lot of thought behind that? There really isn't, because uh, I mean, what people don't may not realize is that. Uh, Francis has obviously been drawing for a long time, and, and I colored uh, his artwork for you know ten years. So uh, I've known him uh, for a long time, and we're really good friends. Uh, he's one of my closest friends, so we don't argue that much uh, even creatively. Like we don't, we don't, we have you know the same set of values and things that that interest us. So it's really very uh, you know I guess synergistic or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, so you know the lines are blurred quite a bit. Like I don't mind if he comes in and if he wants to. You know, change some colors on my page because he had something in his mind. I respect him as a, as an artist, uh, and so you know, for us, it's just we just want the book to come out. So you know, it doesn't matter how we get there, just as long as we get there and, and it's the best that we could possibly make it. Yeah, absolutely. And, I'm, and it's probably it's probably not too bad to go like I don't know. I know no matter what we write, it's going to look amazing. You know? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, look, look. I I've written stuff that have had artists that were not great. Yeah. <laughs> And it's always better when the artist is great. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is, yeah. you know. I mean, uh, sometimes you know, you may have like a language barrier with an artist who doesn't, who's not natively English speaking, and so you might be surprised at what you get in return. So you know, with Francis, it's way easier. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, we don't want to just talk about the DC stuff. Let me, let me, what, do you, what do you? What's your creator-owned world looking like right now? Um, I did a Kickstarter uh, in uh, in the summer called Sons of Devil, and it's a short film and uh, a comic book. And so we shot the short. At the end of August, and uh, the artist Tony Infante, who's this amazing guy I found online, who uh, is from Madrid, uh, he's working on the first issue right now, and, and we'll have a big announcement in January. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing series, but uh, can't announce till January. So you know, don't tell anyone. Okay, we're not like recording this or anything. <laughs> any other? And any other work coming down the pipe other than that? Um, there's like that that special uh, event that's going on in DC next year, so I've got a couple issues in, in that, and uh, I'm working on some pitches and uh, still trying to get uh, you know the the film side of things going because I definitely want to also be involved in uh, in writing and directing stuff. So so being able to uh, write and direct is short, and we had a budget of like twenty eight thousand uh, dollars. Uh, it was incredibly fun. Awesome, awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It was really great to see you. I hope you have an amazing con. You too, man. Thanks. Hey, guys. Justin back at New York Comic Con, day two. I am over at the Valiant booth, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Warren Simons. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me ask you first. Um, Valiant's been back for about two years now? Yes. Okay. And in that time... Uh, the reception to the company and the, the books have been um, phenomenal, I, I would say. Uh, how are you, uh, are you happy with the way the company's going, uh, especially with the, the Valiant Next stuff coming? Uh, what are your thoughts on the overall growth of the company in the two years? Uh, I couldn't be happier uh, with, with uh, how we've done over the last couple of years. Uh, we've uh, now built up so that we're publishing nine books uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, we just made our announcement for Valiant Next where we're going to be launching uh, six number ones, uh, leading out with the Valiant number one by Jeff Lemire, Matt Kitt, and Paulo Rivera. So, you know, I've been really, really, really happy with the reception. Uh, the Valiant fans have been great. Uh, we've been able to uh, uh, reach out to a whole new audience as well. So, you know, over the past two years, I think EXO is about to hit about issue 30. So I think we're about two and a half years in. So, you know, I couldn't be happier with uh, how the reception's been, certainly. 
Yeah, uh, the reception to the Valiant Next books, um, super positive. Uh, did you guys always have Jeff Lemire and Matt Kent in mind when you wanted to lead this next charge? Well, I was able to work with Matt on a book called Bloodshot Zero. Uh, he wrote that issue for us. I loved it. Uh, and then I began to work with Matt more and more on a couple of different projects. Uh, he launched a book called Unity for us. Um, and he began to develop a bunch of other projects like Ninjak uh, and a couple of, and Rye, which we launched uh, uh, as well. And then uh, at a creative writer's retreat a couple of months ago or about a year ago, uh, he mentioned that he was really good friends with Jeff Lemire and him and Jeff had talked about working together on something. Uh, and I love Jeff's work on Sweet Tooth, uh, Essex County, uh, a bunch of other uh, uh, books he's written. Uh, and uh, I certainly welcome the opportunity to have the guys collaborate. Uh, and then a couple of, about a year ago or about half a year ago, I was able to fly out to, I think it was the Seattle convention. And uh, I sat down and I talked with Matt and Jeff and uh, uh, we were able to sort of uh, spitball and kick around a bunch of different ideas. And ultimately it turned into something called The Valiant uh, because we, it was just such a beautiful, uh, awesome idea featuring uh, a couple of our key characters like Bloodshot, Eternal Warrior, K. McHenry, the Geomancer, and then ultimately it mushroomed into something that became, I don't want to say uh, uh, an all-encompassing universe event, but uh, it features the uh, reappearance of a character named the Immortal Enemy, and the Valiant Universe has to basically team up to stop them. Uh, the Immortal Enemy has attacked uh, the Eternal Warrior a few times in the past and, and killed the Geomancer, and every time that's happened, it's plunged humanity into a dark age. Uh, so now basically uh, the entire Valiant Universe has to stop this from happening, or a new dark age is going to appear. So we love the high concept and love the idea behind the book. That does sound really awesome. And I have to admit, I mean, looking up at the imagery, it uh, it's really exciting to look at. And it, it just invites, it looks it looks like it just invites new readers in. So you guys are hoping, I'm, I'm sure, to pull in um, a lot of people who maybe weren't reading uh, Valiant before. It would, like, would that be a safe place for them to jump into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're still two years old. You know, we're like uh, two, two and a half years old, as you mentioned. Uh, we're continuing to, to expand and grow and, and show people what the Valiant Universe is, who our characters are. Uh, I don't expect that everyone listening to this or everyone who's a comic book fan that loves Marvel and DC uh, will have an idea of who our universe is. So we're consistently trying to build books that are accessible, uh, that help introduce our characters. Uh, and that's definitely something that Jeff and Matt uh, tried to build the universe uh, and this particular uh, story around, I should say. Uh, also, it doesn't hurt that we have Paulo Rivera doing the art and Paulo, who many of your listeners will know from his run on Daredevil, which I think he won an Eisner Award on, as well as his extraordinary cover work uh, for Marvel, is one of the finest illustrators and painters in the industry. So we're very happy to have him here doing this. Yeah, his work on Daredevil was absolutely terrific. If there was a character uh, coming out of Valiant Next that you feel was ready, primed for a breakout, that would be a big hit among the fans, uh, which character do you think that would be? Uh, it's a good question. I love all my children equally. So uh, we've got two new launches coming out. Uh, one is called Divinity, which is a new character written by Matt Kent, uh, which is basically a, uh, a Russian cosmonaut who went to, to space in the 1960s uh, and recently returns with some changes to him. Uh, and, and that's as far as I'll get into it, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. It begins to pose a major threat to the Unity team in the Valiant Universe, um, uh, as well as other members of the Valiant Universe. Uh, but we really feel like it's a beautiful story that uh, is character-centric yet has a very broad scope to it. So we're really excited for that one. Matt's going to launch Ninjak for us as well, which is awesome. And Jeff's going to launch Bloodshot for us, uh, which we're very excited about. He's got a really new 
kind of beautiful take on it. Uh, I don't want to get too far into it, but I'm kind of excited about it. Uh, we also have Time Walker by Fred Van Lente uh, and Clayton Henry, and those guys did a bang-up job on uh, the Archer and Armstrong title, uh, which issue 25 of, I think, is coming out this month. Uh, I think we just actually sent it to the printer today. Uh, and then we have Imperium by the brilliant Joshua Dysart and Dougie Braithwaite. Dougie just finished our Armor Hunters crossover. I think he's one of the finest pencilers of his generation. Uh, so we're very happy with the, with the lineup we have right now. Terrific. When can uh, readers expect to see I get, like, the first wave of Valiant next on the shelves? December uh, is when the Valiant will come out. And then I think January is Time Walker. And then Divinity and Imperium are in February. And then March is Ninjak and April is Bloodshot. So uh, that's the lineup. So come December, uh, uh, that would be the first time for the Valiant Next Initiative. Uh, but if you haven't read XO Zero yet, you should. It's awesome. EXO is very awesome. My personal favorite is Archer and Armstrong, which I just can't get enough of. Uh, so, Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and uh, try and have a great day. Uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We are back here at NYCC in Artist Alley with Mr. Dan Parent. Archie, artist extraordinaire. Dan, how is your con going so far? Uh, really good. Very good Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, uh, how many years have you been coming here? Uh, since the first show, I don't know. Is this? I think maybe has it been ten years? This show's been going on. Yeah, I, I've been here since the first uh, New York Comic Con. And how has it been to see it grow like this? It's amazing. It's uh, almost. It's a really in the realm of this San Diego Comic Con at, at this point. Yeah. So it's really good. So I mean, it has been a big, big year for Archie Comics. A huge year. Um, uh, for, I mean, tell people how long have you been working with Archie and working at Archie and. What has it been like, you know, this this year and seeing things explode the way it has? Uh, well, I've been at Archie for 27 years, and um, yeah, the last I mean, the last few years have been amazing. I mean, in all the years I've been there, more has happened in the last two or three years than has happened in the previous 25 years. So it's been amazing, and this year has been you know even more incredible. So yeah, it's it's uh, I, I I can't believe it myself. So. <laughs> um, and so were you, when you've been working at Archie for 27 years, when you were. A kid, where was Archie a comic that you read that you were kind of that you were into that got you into comics? Absolutely, yeah. It was one of the comics that got me reading. I wasn't a very voracious reader when I was a little kid, but when I started reading Archie's and um, a few other comics, um, that got me going, and I became a, a my reading skills improved tremendously. <laughs> what's your uh, What's your favorite thing about uh, drawing Archie? You know. Um, I just love drawing the characters. You know, um, I like drawing the girls a lot. I've always liked drawing the girls, but um, you know, I never get tired of drawing them for some reason. I just always find them interesting. I like the, you know, the. I've always been a fan of the semi-realistic style, and it, Archie fits that perfectly. Awesome, awesome. What are some of your, your other influences um, other than uh, Archie? Well, you know, I grew up uh, reading superhero comics too, of course, DCs and Marvels, mostly DCs. I was a big Superman fan. Um, I always loved all the um, uh, Justice League stuff, um, and uh, yeah, Wonder Woman. Yeah, I, I, you know, Legion of Superheroes was like my favorite. So I, I grew up on that, and I always liked the artists that were sort of um, a little more simpler. They didn't have to put in all the line work and the detail, and um, which is probably one reason I like like Darwin Cook a lot, Amanda Connor. I like their art a lot because it's kind of streamlined um, and that's that's sort of that's, that's what, what influences me and of course Dan DiCarlo was the biggest influence on me because he was the master at that kind of art absolutely I mean and you're um, 
uh, outside of the the core, Archie, you know, Betty, Veronica, Jughead, who's your who's your favorite characters to draw? Outside of the core characters, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Cheryl Blossom is great. Kevin Keller, of course. Um, Cheryl Blossom, I think, is a, is a favorite. Like I always, well, when I'm doodling, I'll always draw Cheryl. So I, I something about her, uh, just uh, you know, is appealing to me. For obvious reasons, probably, but um, yeah, I just you know, yeah, I, I would I would pin it on her, yeah, for sure. Awesome, awesome, and um, so you've done a couple of crossovers in the last couple of years. What is it like doing like the Archie and Glee crossover, the Archie and Kiss stuff? Once again, great fun. I was a, I was a Kiss fan growing up, so Kiss was fun. Kiss the Kiss book was really easy. Um, working with the Kiss people were Gene Simmons was fantastic. Glee was fun too. Uh, that was a lot more work because there's a lot more characters and you had to get a lot more likenesses. So that was a challenge, but it was fun. And um, yeah, I'm always up for putting in guest stars in the books. You know, we've done stuff with like um, Michael Strahan was in an issue of Archie, and uh, whenever we can get like a guest star or someone to have an appearance in the book, it's always it's always fun. Awesome, awesome. Um, and what have you thought about kind of stuff that you, that you haven't been doing, like uh, Afterlife with Archie and the and I was like Sabrina premiered this week. What, what how, how do you feel about that darker side of the Archie universe? Um, I like it. I mean, I'm a fan of horror movies and horror comics, so Afterlife is great. It has a, such a great um, chemistry between the writing and the uh, art. So um, I, I love it. I love it. And um, you know, I think it shows that you know there's a lot of different universes for Archie, and you know, Archie. You know, you can have Archie that's the family-friendly Archie, and you can kind of go off the rails a little bit, and that's fine, too. Awesome, awesome. So uh, how do you feel about this Comic-Con? What do you think, uh, how do you think it's going to go this year? Well, if, if today's any indication, uh, it should be pretty crazy because uh, this is really insane for a Thursday. So uh, I can just imagine what Saturday is going to be like. So it's, it's great. That's why we, uh, you know, you want it to be busy. That's why we're here. So. Awesome. Well, Dan Parent, thank you so much for joining on Talking Comics, and have a great con. Test, test, test. All right, cool. All right, so um, we're here at New York City Comic Con, uh, getting some hands-on time with Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham. Um, we're with Stephen, one of the developers on the game. Stephen, um, so Lego Batman 2, I think, kind of uh, upped the game a lot for a lot of the Lego games. It introduced a, a lot of uh, new elements, I think, to, to, the, to the series and... Uh, the, and the, the kind of expansion even of the Lego Batman franchise in general, what is Batman, Lego Batman 3 kind of doing to up that game? Well, with Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham, it really is about taking it on to even more new content. So with Lego Batman 2, it was iconic for a number of reasons. It was the first time we had like an open world hub. It was the first time we had talking Lego characters. So before then it was all just like the, the grunts and the, and the gibberish. Um, and they were all great, but you know, it, that's just scratching the surface, really, of what we can do with Lego Batman as a game and as a series. So I think in there as well, in Lego Batman 2, we introduced the Justice League. So Batman 2 really was just setting the foundations for future plans. Um, we've got a lot more to experience in the DC universe, and not just, in, not just in Gotham and not just in Batman. So with the game being called Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham, our main focus really is to take Batman and Robin away from Gotham City. So Gotham still plays a part, yeah, but... We wanted to we wanted to explore further afield, um, and that meant going to different worlds, 
We would go to the Justice League Watchtower for the first time. We saw it in Batman 2 in cutscenes and things like that, but we never got to like, run around it. We never got to sort of like players like Martian Manhunter and Green Lantern sort of like making their way around the Watchtower. Um, we've also got, you know, the Hall of Doom. So the villains in Batman 2, you know, you, you came across Joker and Lex and, you know, a few of the others in the hub. Um, we wanted a more, we wanted the villains to play a bigger role. Um, we wanted that feeling that we had in Batman 1 where you got to play villain missions. Um, so the villains and the heroes in the story, they kind of like form like a reluctant alliance. So that, again, that's something new for our Lego Batman series. So seeing sort of like the, the banter between Joker and Batman if they, when they're having to team up together, they don't really want to do it. Well, Joker might want to do it, but uh, our Joker anyway. Uh, but Batman, you know, he can't stand the thought of it, but you know, they've got to kind of make it work. And it makes, it, it makes for a really interesting dynamic to the story. Um, Characters, you know, touching touching on some of those characters that we that we brought out for Lego Batman 2, some of the new guys, um, and obviously the Justice League. We, we've taken the we've taken it up, like not just one notch, but about about 20 notches really. Uh, we've set the standard really high for the amount of characters and the variety. So Batman 2 had 50 characters, I think. Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham has over 150 characters. So we we we. We're experiencing much more of the DC universe than we've ever seen in a Lego Batman game. So it's no longer just Batman-related characters. It's not just like you're not you're not just going to find Killer Croc. Um, you are going to find Killer Croc, but you're not just you're, you're going to find Killer Croc plus maybe someone from like a Lantern World like Zamoron, like Star Sapphire, or you might find someone uh, in the form of like Saint Walker from from Odin and the Blue Lanterns. So. Again, touching on those different worlds that those characters are from, that's another thing that we've introduced. So we're going to be going to all of those new, all of those Lantern worlds. They're all new to us. They're all new to, uh, they're all new to fans of Lego Batman. Really, um, obviously, there's plenty of people out there who know all about those worlds. Um, but for those people who have played Lego Batman on one and two, they're going to want to see. We figured they're going to want to see a new a new take on on batman and sort of taking him out taking batman like as a character on a personal level taking him out of his taking him out of the familiar surroundings of gotham and putting him in locations like like yismol for instance you know red lantern world you know that's that's a scary place you know and with that comes like a whole host of new characters so like with yismol we've got atrocitus in there we've got blees in there so we really are exploring much further uh, into the dc universe it all starts with Batman, but it ends with a lot of new stuff. Um, another new thing we've got in there is the suits. So in Batman 1 and 2, we had, like, suit signals. So you, you jump on a suit signal, you change into, like, Batman's sensor suit, for instance, and then you would jump off and you would go and do the puzzle that you needed that suit for. Some of those suits have made a return. However, they've re returned in a different form. So you can see here at the moment, um, Robin's just brought up something that we call a suit wheel. So rather than having suit signals, which are now a thing of the past, they're, they're, we've done away with them. Any point in time in the game, you can bring up the suit wheel for Batman, Robin, Cyborg, Joker, or Lex Luthor, and they have eight different suits to choose from. So you can see Robin here has just picked his, uh, his hazmat suit. So he, that means that he can go through toxic goo. He can hoover up like little Lego pieces and collect them in a little backpack, um, and then he can deposit them in a machine, and then that machine effectively recycles those pieces and builds something new for you to use um, as well as obviously changing sort of the, the, the mechanic for uh, changing between suits we've introduced some new suits so Batman for the first time has got a space suit so obviously going into space 
we really wanted to give Batman something that lets him breathe in space, because obviously that'd be a bit of a problem. And contrary to a few rumours, Batman can't breathe in space. Um, and we do we do touch on that in, in this level, actually, with some of the dialogue. But yeah, so Batman's just picked up a spacesuit here. Um, so that basically allows him to fly around. He needs to, obviously, he can't fly at the moment because he needs uh, he needs the jetpack fuel. So again, to add an extra dynamic to, to some of these suits, you actually need a charge. So you'll so around the level you'll find like um, you'll find like a charge point. Batman will be able to fill up his jetpack with fuel and then he can fly around until obviously his jetpack runs out again. And then at the, the, the space it also gives him like a, a nifty little space laser to cut through certain uh, gold Lego walls and things like that. Um, and it's basically we wanted to we wanted to take a step away from that quite restrictive and quite linear feeling of gameplay that we had in Batman One and Two. We wanted to give the player the freedom that you know they would want if they're playing as a superhero or a supervillain those guys have all the freedom that they want really because they can do anything um, and as well as that we wanted to we wanted to up the stakes with what a character like batman could do we didn't want him to feel like he was we didn't want it we didn't it's a fine line we didn't want to make him feel weak if you know what i mean we were you know this is batman he's got loads of gadgets he you know he's he's got all, you know bruce wayne's got all the money so he can get the gadgets um, he just needs to keep it on the down low um, so yeah, we we uh, we really wanted to take that feeling of you know of a character like Batman feeling at all like vulnerable to anything. Obviously, there are certain things you know he can't just walk through fire, but he, you know he, yeah, and like I said, he can't breathe in space. But you know he's got certain ways around those things, and that's part of the puzzling element of the game. Really, it's like well, I've come across this thing here, and I need to you know I need the suit, but I need to unlock the suit first, so I need to do a puzzle to get that suit and then go on. And then, and once you've got that suit, you can you can chop and change that suit at any point in time in the game. There's no longer just a case of, well, I can only be that suit if there's a suit signal there. So, you know, it gives the player much more freedom that, that we think you deserve to have if you're playing as Batman or if you're playing as Robin or, you know, a character like Cyborg's a great example. Cyborg in Batman 2 had some cool stuff, but, you know, it's Cyborg. We wanted to, again, up the stakes with that character, make massive improvements to how flexible he was as a character. So he's got eight different things, eight different suits that he can change into. One of them obviously is a, is a big, like Lego big figure version of Cyborg, which obviously you can't, you've got to really have that, haven't you? So, you know, it's a great sort of, it's a great transform animation, sort of like where you see like, sort of like everything animates out and his body sort of like increases in size and bulks up. And then another one of Cyborgs is like, he's got a stealth suit, so he can go invisible, but it's invisible in our sort of TT Games classic take on it. He can turn into a washing machine because <laughs> nobody's going to suspect a washing machine. So, you know, we, we, we've, really, we've really upped the stakes in, in, what you, in, in what you can do in the Batman universe with this one. And it all comes down to sort of like taking those characters, all those 150 plus characters, and giving them, and, and looking, delving into what that character's about, their personalities, what they can do, you know, really searching back through the fiction, finding, even if it's the tiniest little thing, but it'll give somebody somewhere a smile, if you know what I mean. So we had an example where obviously Plastic Man's in the game. Uh, and Plastic Man does some really cool and quirky things. He can turn into a plane when he double jumps and he flies around. He can turn into like a, a space hopper, which I think is like a hippity hop or something in America. Um, so he can bounce around. But as well as that, we had a really interesting, uh, interesting uh, request from somebody on social media who actually said, can Plastic Man turn into a toilet? So you know, we looked into it and we found that in a, I can't remember which comic it is now, but at some point in the past, Plastic Man has turned into a toilet and flushed the bad guy away. 
you know, so we, and, you know, it might have just been one person who asked for that, but you know, the, the, the kind of approach that we wanted to take was we wanted to give the, that kind of person, you know, that, you know, that little smile on the face when they see it for the first time. Um, because at the end of the day, these Lego, the Lego Batman 3 really is, it, it, it's for the fans because it's made by the fans as such, because we're all fans of Batman. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a, a license that's very dear to us. Obviously, being the third one in the series, you know, it's it's been a huge pleasure for us to make it. So, we want to we want to give something back. So, it's not a, it's you know it's ju- it's just so it's it's like a you know this is our love letter to to Batman in the year in the year of Batman in Batman with Batman seventy five coming. Um, it felt completely natural and just almost. Just an absolute joy to make, really, because there's so much love for the characters, not just for Batman, but you know, for Green Lantern, you know, some of the bad guys like Joker and Lex Luthor. There's just that much love there that you know, we just wanted to give it. We wanted to we wanted to give something back to those who have played Batman one and two and enjoyed it and wanted to see more. So we are giving them more. We're giving them a lot more. Um, Hopefully it'll keep everyone nice and uh, distracted for a while until you know. <laughs> well, it, it, I remember in Lego Batman too that moment where you first, you know, the Superman fr- kind of first enters the, the game and you kind of get control of him, yeah. and you know, expecting it to be like, okay, there'll be a ceiling to how high I can fly, there'll be some sort of meter on how long I can fly, and then you can just do it, you know. And it was like this great feeling of okay, these guys like get like what these characters are about, yeah. and I think you know in in Lego Batman two. And also in the, the the Lego Marvel game that came out uh, last year, there's an incredible like uh, dedication to the lore and to the tiny cracks and crevices of these characters. As a comic book fan, it's really nice to see, right? Where it's obviously like you know you know you're you're you know a, a six year old playing the game isn't going to get those references, but as a thirty year old playing the game, like oh my god, like look at this, this is great. You know, uh, how much? Are you guys steeped in kind of that 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 lore, and how much are you looking into those little nooks and crannies? I mean, I just see I think Batmite popping up on this thing. I saw I saw Batman, you know, sixty six running around with you know big you know bam powers when he's hitting. So what what is, what, what kind of dedication you guys have to those those elements? It's a pretty big dedication. <laughs> um, it's got bigger over the years. Um, I mean, it, you've got to take take Batman three really compare it to Batman two. Um, that fifty character roster to now being over 150 and we try with every single character to give them something unique something that they can do that no one else can do even if it you know even if it's just like an iconic pose or you know something that they that 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 people will when they play as that character they'll think yeah these people get it because you know we do get it <laughs> it's uh, because we spend a lot of time an effort we have guys back at home in the office um researching these characters like day in day out researching the locations what they should feel like you know how batman would react to being in yismol or being in a planet like quad um you know and with that comes like loads of different lantern characters but yeah we, we spend a lot of time a, a huge chunk of time is done researching the content because you know we 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 know that you know the people that play lego batman 3 no, they're playing it for a reason, really. Like for the most part, you know, one one of the great things about their games is they can pick up and play it, and you know, they can just have fun, and it and it appeals to all ages. But that core sort of like target audience that that now is sort of like gone from being just like you know a six to ten year olds to you know way up over here, like you know thirties and forty year old people playing the games, you know, with their kids and stuff. Um, you know, we've 
we've—it's—it's it's become something that that it's just developed over time, really, with us. Where you know we've identified that people really appreciate sort of like the, the the nostalgia factor if they're an older player. You know, obviously, '60s Batman's a great example. You know, we've been wanting to do '60s Batman for about seven years. Um, I think Batman One was about six or seven years ago now, so we wanted to do it then. Um, and then we only really got the opportunity to do it for Batman 3. So once the opportunity came up, we never forgot that we wanted to do it. So it was a no-brainer when that time came. And 60s Batman's a great example of something that appeals, will appeal to, because it's so colourful and bright and, like, you know, it's, 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 it's so comical. And some of the things that, that 60s Batman um, and 60s Robin could do, and even 60s Alfred there, just with the tea tray... Um, <laughs> All these different, all these different '60s uh, interpretations of the characters, they offer like you know, a fresh new take for for the younger players, but they also bring a huge element of nostalgia. So, you know, in the level the level over here where we're just we're just uh, watching '60s Batman and Robin build the Batmobile, um, you know, it's the '60s Batmobile. You know, that's the great. That's probably the best Batmobile, right? <laughs> um, and. It, it, with it, with, again, with 60s Batman, it really is just like it's identifying that there's a lot of love for that particular part of Batman history, uh, and that's really what we've we focused on with Batman Three. We've got our core story, and we've got all we've got the hub and things like that. But we've got characters in there that you know that may have only been like part of a fraction of, Bat, of you know the, the 75 years that we've had of Batman, but they'll appeal to a number of people out there. They've got a cult following, or they're iconic in some some way. Um, and it's really been our job to identify which of those characters are the ones that you know will people will appreciate the most. So you know, the, like I said, there is a lot of work. It's ongoing throughout the whole development period. We start off with like a, a rough wish list of what we want to do, um, and then it probably starts about that about you know pretty small, and then just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then by the time the end of the game, myself and Arthur, the game director, are basically just public enemies number one and two because everyone in the office hates us because we just keep saying well can we have this because you know in in a comic somewhere plastic man flushes someone down the toilet so can we please have this and then you know and it really is just for us it is just about fan service uh, we just want to give the people the game that they want um, and it's just something that's grown really what is? Let me ask you a question. Um, of all the versions of Batman in the game, which one is your favorite, and which character that wasn't in Lego Batman Two should people be looking out for that they you think is going to be like an amazing, you know, give them that moment? They're like, oh my god, I can't believe they can do that with this character. So, which version of Batman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite version of Batman that I can talk about. Yeah, there you go. Because my favorite, <laughs> my favorite version may not be revealed yet. <laughs> All right, okay. I do have a favourite and I know exactly which one it is, but out of the ones that have been announced, my favourite is the 60s Batman. Um, I unfortunately didn't get to watch 60s Batman very much when I was younger. However, upon discovering it when I was about 12, um, I just thought it was incredible. Um, I've, I watched the, uh, the 66 movie and um, and there's just something about it, you know. Um, it's like it's like these. I mean, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of like 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 B movie sci-fi movies and stuff like that. And it has that kind to me anyway. It had that kind of feel about it when I first saw it. You know, 
yeah, it doesn't, you know, it was in a time when there was no CG or, or anything like that. You, you know, you, you get the scene in one episode when Batman's surfing with the Joker and stuff, and yeah, it does look a bit, it does look a bit cheap on the, in, the, in the background, but that's the charm with it, and I think, I think that's what the show, has, it tapped into, it, it was the charm. Uh, and for me, what we wanted to recreate with, 60, with the 60s Batman character was that charm and that personality that Adam West has. So we got so so he can do the Batusi in there, and he can you know he can pick out a bomb out of his pocket and run around with a bomb on his head, just like in the film. Um, you know, when he when he get when he goes into sort of like a sneak mode, like into a stealth mode, he'll lift his cape up and sort of tiptoe around, and yeah, everyone can see him. But you know, it's it's funny. Um, so yeah, I'd say 60s Batman's my favourite um, characters that weren't in Batman Two that are in Batman Three. My favourite is Beast Boy. Um, right. Beast Boy, that's awesome. Beast Boy, he's in there. Um, yeah, he's just a cool character. I didn't know about Beast Boy until we started making this game. Um, it's just unreal. It's just like, yeah. and, and and I think it's the the treatment that we've given the character is it, so sort of like it's so it's so slick and it's so it's so it flows really nicely. So when you jump in the air, he'll turn into a little a little green bird and he'll fly around and it's just really cute. But then on the flip side, if you you know if you hold down if you hold down one button, he'll transform into a gorilla and he'll start beating his chest and things like that. Um, and then again, when you jump into the water, he'll just naturally turn into a fish. And it's just that kind of like it's that it's, it just feels just really slick and non-linear and, and very. It's, you're not forever pressing sort of you're not having to go up to a switch for instance to to turn into something because that would just seem totally unnatural and i think that's it it just feels really natural and again having having not really known too much about beast boy until we started making batman 3 i think he's the character that i've looked into the most as to you know what he's about and where he comes from and you know obviously some of his cool things obviously we yeah, we we could talk about Beast Boy for a while and what he can do in the game, basically, because uh, he's just he's just such a unique character. I think I think that's I think that's the thing. I think he can do something on every button, and it's just a joy to play as someone like that. And that's what we aim. He's kind of like the epitome of what we aim for with every character. It's like we want every button to mean something to the to, to whether it's a little boy playing it or whether it's like mummy or daddy playing it. We want every button to do something different. I think he kind of like sums that up perfectly. So yeah, I'd say Beast Boy. Awesome, man. It's great with the characters like that because you you will get younger people playing the game and it'll be their first exposure to those characters and they'll form a bond with those characters going yeah. forward. It's really, really cool. So, um, well, uh, that's all the questions I have. When can, we, uh, when can we play Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham? Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham is out next month, November, November 11th in the US, uh, and then it's November the 14th in Europe. So, Awesome. That's for basically everything, right? Yeah, so... <laughs> Deep Breath, PS3, Xbox 360, PS4, Xbox One, 3DS, PS Vita, um, Wii U, PC. I think that's everything. <laughs> that sounds like everything. Well, well, thank you so much for talking to us, and have a great New York Comic Con. Yeah, cheers. Thanks very much. You too. Great job, man. Thank you so much. The game sounds awesome. <laughs> Again, disappointing. Excuse me. Excuse me, man. Sorry. You're just on the court. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Justin. It's Talking Comics. Day 3, NYCC. I'm back at the DC booth and I'm here with Len Wein, legendary writer of many, many things. Uh, but today we're here to talk about Batman 66, uh, the lost episode. Before we get into that, I just wanted to 
ask, what was your history with uh, you know, the Batman 66 show? Well, I've been telling people, and people kind of look at me askance. It, that show actually saved my life. Yes, uh, about six weeks before it was set to premiere, I got misdiagnosed with the flu when it turned out I had blood poisoning. And by the time they got me to the hospital, it was terminal. They told my dad, he's not going to last the hour, prepare yourself. And I overheard that. And my reaction was, hell no, I'm not missing the premiere of Batman. <laughs> and there was no drug that they could use. It was allergic to the only drug available. And so I held on by force of will for about five weeks until they found a, an alternative experimental antibiotic, which worked. And the doctors kept going, he's supposed to be dead. Why is he alive? And I'm going, I'm not missing Batman. <laughs> well, that was not what I was expecting, but that's kind of amazing that Batman gave you the will to live. That's, that is amazing. You know, I, I mean, we've, we've had a back and forth relationship for the rest of my life since then. So, I mean, I think everybody's favorite hero would be Batman, but did you have a, a favorite villain in the show that you kind of connected with in any way? Wow, I, I like the big three. I thought they were all, I thought Frank Gorshin's Riddler was on the money. I thought Burgess Meredith's Penguin was spectacular. And uh, if he had just shaved off the damn mustache, I really like Cesar Romero's Joker. I agree about the mustache. So with you know, this in mind about how much it meant to you, writing Batman 66, The Lost Episode, what can you tell us, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, about the book? It's a very faithful, in its own way, adaptation of the TV show. The tone is exactly the same. The dialogue is as best anyone can match it the same. It's continue as it's as if the show had never left the air. We're doing well, the regular guys, Jeff uh, Parker and everyone who works on it, are trying to replicate the old show as best they can. And now the lost episode was an episode of 66 that never came on air. It never got produced. Never got produced. Uh, Harlan Ellison had been writing a lot of TV back in the 60s and wrote this outline and for reasons that are not mine to share, uh, they never got produced. And it went into a drawer somewhere and he forgot about it. And he found it while cleaning out his records one day and said, oh my God, I forgot I'd done this because, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, so he submitted it to DC and said, you guys interested? And and they said, yeah, we'd love to. And then he called me up and told me that all of this had happened. And he said, you know, all I have to do is find somebody to write the script. And I said, well, I'm available. <laughs> and he said, I'll tell them. And they called me up and said, would you like to write the script? I said, sure. And it blossomed from there. So what's, what's the difference or, or how was it to write you know, a, a television script in a way and then turn it into a comic uh, as far as difference maybe from I'm just going to write a regular comic book script and now I'm, I have a script that I'm, I'm going to make fit with a comic book. It's no different than adapting any other series into comic books. There's so many comic book versions of so many different TV shows. You just maintain the tone of the show and, you know, keep the characters on the money, keep their dialogue, their dialogue. And, you know, when I teach writing, I always remind my class, write for the medium you're working in. 
If you're writing a comic book, you write a comic book. You don't write a TV show. You write a comic book version of the TV show. And vice versa. I mean, I've adapted a lot of my own stuff from comics to television over the years. And I make all the changes I need to make to make it a better TV show. Excellent, excellent. Now, the villain of this book, Two-Face, never made it into the TV show itself. It was deemed you know, too scary for it's a children's show. So what's it like being to introduce Two-Face into this Batman 66 universe? It, well, Two-Face is one of my favorite villains. I love writing Two-Face. So it was fun. It was a great deal of fun. Uh, you know, people have asked me what voice I picked. And I basically picked the voice I use when I write the character. Just adjusted for the tone of the television series. Very cool, very cool. Now, winding down here, I have two questions left. And they're more about the, the actual industry themselves. Like, you've created uh, multiple characters. Swamp Thing, Wolverine. What's it like for you to see, like, something that you've made now like go off into the world and t- like what's it like for you to watch other writers and read other writers interpretations of characters that you've created probably the same reaction that Siegel and Schuster and Bob Kane would have had to what I did with their characters when I wrote them I've never felt proprietary towards my characters I never felt I had the right to having written so many other people's characters over the years let them do to mine what I've done to theirs so this be it's not tit for tat, but you've got to be open. You've got to be gracious because we're telling an ongoing story. It's, it's the modern mythology. And lastly, I mean, you've been in this industry a very, very long time. Um, you've done amazing things. If you had just a general thought on the, the state of the industry right now, what would it be? I think it's surprisingly healthy. We had a conversation at a convention, you know, the San Diego Con earlier this year, where a lot of the writers from the 70s all got together and had the panel. And the host asked, so how did you feel about the industry back in the 70s? And with the exception of me, everybody said, I didn't think it would be around until the 80s. And I said, I never believed it was going to die. And uh, the, the moderator asked me, well, why not? I said, because I wanted to keep writing comics. That's a great reason. And so right now it's extraordinarily healthy, I think. I I agree. Well, Len, that's all the time that we have for today. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on with us here at Talking Comics. And uh, we'll definitely look forward to reading Batman 66, The Lost Episode. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, guys. It's Justin. It's Talking Comics. Day three, New York Comic Con. I'm here at the DC booth, and I'm here with Marguerite Bennett, Mike Johnson, uh, you guys are writing Earth 2, World's End. Um, without giving too much in the way of spoilers, what could you tell me a little bit about the book for possibly new readers? It's really a, a big apocalyptic story. We like to say that like every page should be a splash page because so much is happening. Um, and it's with characters that are familiar. They're sort of um, analogs to Earth 1 characters, but they're different. We have... Uh, uh, Batman is actually Thomas Wayne, the father rather than Bruce, uh, and he's a very different kind of Batman. Um, Green Lantern, his powers don't come from outer space. They're generated by the Earth itself. So it's tweaks on familiar characters 
and you know, all bets are off as to what can happen to them. So I'd say Earth One is a safer place than Earth Two. <laughs> oh, just that there are no holds barred here. We are allowed to be as wild as we want, and we're encouraged to be as wild as we want. You know, God help everyone. <laughs> That was actually going to be my next question was uh, the type of freedom that you guys have with these new characters and is it for you guys freeing in a way to have none of that continuality problems from Earth 1 coming into Earth 2 like you're able to go wild and what's that like as a writer writing these alternate characters? Awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a lot there's a lot of freedom that you, that you have where you're not constrained by um, the tradition of the characters or what readers expect. We can really do uh, pretty much whatever we want and then the editors will tell us if we're going crazy <laughs> or not. Well, Earth 2 is a weekly book, so this is going to be like a two-part question. What's it like working on a weekly comic as opposed to one coming out bi-weekly or monthly? And what's the creative process like working with a group of writers and artists as opposed to like one creative team? Um, okay, as far as working with the group of writers, I'd say it's great. I mean, especially with the combination that we have, we're all very supportive of one another. Um, Daniel Wilson, I mean, is, is the king of plot. He came up with, you know, this enormous story, uh, you know, all, all this detail, all this richness from which we could draw, and then we were able to uh, essentially select the parts of the story that we felt the most passionate about, that we felt we could bring the most emotion and vibrancy and color to. Uh, so it's been really, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it was just luck or if this was, you know, part of the grand design that we all worked so well together. Yeah, I think it helped that we had just three people. It was a small team. And as Marguerite said, having Daniel as sort of the, the head chef, so uh, he could sort of tell us, he could dole out the ingredients, and then and then Margaret, Marguerite and I and Daniel would cook up our pages and put them back together. But it was very much a, a give-and-take process. Um, and just so grateful that, it, that it's worked out the way it has. I, I'm going to miss doing it. So... What's it like working on a weekly comic as opposed to one coming out monthly, bi-weekly? Um, that was very daunting because you had to have so much in the can, essentially, before uh, you know, so your, your artist could be prepared and could bring their A-game to the book. So by the time the first issue came out, you know, we were finishing up essentially our last batch of scripts. Um, you know, so there's a lot that you have to sort of pre-plan and there's a lot you have to be very careful with and, you know, and hope for and try to intuit as far as the fan response. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm working on both the weekly, um, you know, co-writing with Mike and Daniel, and then I'm also doing the monthly, um, the first two with Tom Taylor. And uh, so that's been, you know, the, the weekly is essentially like, like, that's the violence and that's the spectacle and that's, you know, the entire world. You know, we're getting into everyone's stories, so it's, you know, these quick, tense uh, bites. And then the monthly is the moment where we can have, you know, these single character stories that are grown out. You know, you focus on one group, you focus on one moment, and you have, you know, this, this richness and this emotion. Um, so we wanted the two to be able to complement each other to give us a complete picture of the end of the world. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Do you have anything you wanted to add there, Mike? <laughs> All right. So whittling down here... Um, I'll ask a simple one. Do you guys have a, uh, a favorite character that you like to write? Uh, I like writing Dick Grayson, who in our story is a, the everyman character. He doesn't have powers. Um, he's in the same position that any of us would be in when the sky is falling on your head. So it's fun to write this huge epic story through the eyes of the guy on the street. 
And I really fell in love with Power Girl. Um, she brings, you know, this levity to it. You know, it's not a story that's entirely doom and gloom, which I guess you would expect being about the end of the world. Uh, but she still manages to bring this brightness, you know, and this joy to what she's doing. And she's funny and she's witty and she flirts. And, you know, it's um, everything becoming brighter as it comes closer to the end. And so she's, uh, she's the one that I really fell for. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. Last question. Would this be a good spot for somebody who's not reading the main Earth 2 book to come into right now? Um, we want the stories to be able to work independently of one another, and so you could read you know, just one or the other. Uh, I mean, the monthly might be a little bit more difficult since you're going to be missing the connective tissue of how people got to certain places or were placed in certain situations. Um, but the weekly will be entirely accessible to new readers. And the first issue, which is actually 38 pages, just for $2.99, here we go, what a deal. Um, you know, we'll, uh, the first 20 pages will essentially give you, you know, this history of the world, who these people are, what they're doing, and what they want. And so, you know, we really wanted to be able to make it open to people who weren't necessarily familiar with the larger continuity of the world. Excellent, excellent. All right, guys. Well, that's all the questions we have. Earth 2 World's End is out now. Two ninety nine, spectacular deal. And thanks so much for joining us, guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Great. Hey, guys. It's Justin over at Talking Comics. We're here day two at New York Comic Con. I'm here with Gary Brown, new artist on Catwoman. Gary, how's your con going? Uh, it's going good so far. Nice and busy. It is extremely busy here on a Friday. Uh, tomorrow should be interesting. Uh, Gary, the first question I uh, wanted to ask was, uh, how does it feel to uh, be uh, drawing Catwoman? Was it a character you were a fan of growing up? Yeah, actually, um, I really like all the, the characters in the the Bat universe kind of thing. It's like they all they all fit together really well, and uh, and I like Catwoman how she's kind of an anti-hero. You know, she's not really good or bad. It's just kind of indifferent. So I like that quality as well. So yeah, the the Bat universe feels like it's its own universe to itself. Um, with Catwoman, there's been um, fairly or unfairly, there's been. Um, uh, a lot of cri- criticisms around the character, the way she's portrayed, the way she's drawn. Uh, what are your feelings on that, and where do you draw inspiration from with your own designs for the character? Um, well, we don't really... We're kind of downplaying, like I guess, the sexuality. Is that what you... Yeah. yeah. We're downplaying that because she's more like a crime boss kind of thing. She's like, you know, like all kind of nuts and bolts right now because she's trying to manipulate things to happen in a certain way and she's she's focused on one one end game basically uh what was the other part of the question sorry I forgot. Uh, where do you draw your inspiration from with your design of the character was there a particular artist that you came before that you drew a little bit of inspiration from do you feel like as a completely new design um well the there's there's a do i say a new cat there's a new cat woman in it well not really a new cat woman there's another cat woman so that design, uh, we were allowed to go more utilitarian, you know, more, uh, it's not like skin type vinyl, it's more like kind of like, uh, almost like a biker outfit because she'll be falling off stuff and so it's all kind of, uh, it's functional, I guess, more than uh, sexualized, I guess. I mean, it's good to hear. You're working with uh, Genevieve Valentine, who's a, a novelist. Um, What's the creative process like working with her? Is it different than working with perhaps like a more established comic book writer? Is there a different process there? 
No, actually, it's uh, the scripts I get are. I guess the the main difference is they're more fun to read because she like uh, she has narrative flourishes in the uh, in the panel descriptions, like kind of it kind of like you're reading a, a noir book at some points. Uh, so I enjoy reading the panel descriptions as well, um, and I like the she's got a good handle on pacing, uh, when to do like a good you know a good money shot and stuff. So yeah, it's it's been really easy. Like if you hadn't told me she hadn't written a comic before, I wouldn't have known. Terrific, terrific. What were your inspirations growing up as far as art itself? Like, uh, were there any creators, drawers that you, um, artists that you liked growing up that you try and model yourself after? Or do you try and take things from a couple of different people? Yeah, um, I think the first, first artist I really liked was Alex Ross. Um, that was when I was like, I think I was like 18. Like, I, I thought it was just amazing looking. So I did a lot of ink wash and kind of like hyper realistic maybe hyper is the wrong word, realistic. Um, and then it, I slowly developed past that and got into more, more uh, the opposite direction where it's extreme graphic, black and white, minimal lines. And I guess that's where I am now. Like I love artists, you know, like all the older school artists, um, like Klaus Janssen, his stuff's still going on, stuff like that. Um, I really like Eric Larson's stuff as well. I mean, you wouldn't really know it to look at my stuff, I don't think. Maybe the Incan style is a little similar, but I don't, I'm not as exaggerated. I'm still kind of a little more stylized reality than full, uh, full stylization of a human character. Yeah. Has there been any? Uh, have you gotten any reception to the book? I know that some of your stills have come out so far. Um, and when can we expect to see the issue? Um, yeah, everybody's been really, really excited to see it so far. I mean, they were real. I think. Uh, when I did the character pinups and stuff, people kind of got the the mood. Like it's more like it looked kind of like a Michael Mann film. That's actually a really interesting comparison because uh, I took a look at it yesterday when I found out I was going to be doing this interview, and uh, it wasn't completely. It, to me, it looked very stylized, and the Michael Mann uh, comparison I, I think is a is a good one. It, it's uh, it looks very very cool and uh, very like I said stylized, and yeah. So when can uh, when can um, well actually let me ask this first is without giving too much away is uh, what would be like an exciting thing that you could tell somebody that's jumping into the book uh, for the first time um, well you don't really need to know any like most of Catwoman's history for it it's not like heavy in the continent because she's kind of essentially starting a new character arc I mean Batman Eternal obviously it's right after that so you have to really I mean I don't know. It's like it's like if you came onto it and you never read Catwoman before, you wouldn't be lost. Like you know, I wasn't lost. I mean, I haven't read every Catwoman comic ever, and I'm fine with it. So, I think the book's out twenty uh, October twenty second. Yeah. All right, terrific. It's gonna be. Uh, I look forward to reading. It's gonna be exciting to read. It's great to hear that new readers can jump in and not have to worry about continuality or anything like that. So we're uh, definitely check it out. Gary, thanks so much for joining us here on Talking Comics. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we are back here at New York Comic Con, the Dark Horse booth, with Walt Simonson. I am 
super thrilled about talking to you. Um, <laughs> so, Walt, I mean, obviously, um, you're, you're, you're at Dark Horse talking about the re-release, correct, of Robocop versus Terminator. So, what... Why don't you, I think a lot of listeners probably, maybe they never read it, maybe they don't know about it, kind of take us back to what it was like working on the book and then what, what this kind of re-release is going to involve. You know, it was fun. I, basically, I've said this before elsewhere, but essentially I was wrapping up my work at Marvel Comics. I didn't have anything lined up. I hadn't really started calling editors and looking for other stuff. But I was wrapping that stuff up. I got a call from Frank out of the blue, Frank Miller for those of you. So Frank Miller, Frank called me. We, were, we had been studio mates for some years in New York City, so we were good buds. Called me up out of the blue and said, I've got this project from Dark Horse. They've gotten the rights to do a RoboCop Terminator book. Do you want to draw it? And that was like one of the easiest questions I've ever been asked. We hadn't been able to work together. We tried a couple times. It had not worked out. So I was thrilled. So Frank wrote the story. He worked out what I thought was a really clever way to combine the RoboCop and the Terminator universes. I'm not giving that away. You've got to buy the book and read it. It's like an eighth grade book report. Now you don't have to buy the book and see what actually happens. But he was very smart about it. So, and in, in the kind of stuff Frank was writing, it's, it's, it's pretty black. It's got some black, but it's very funny. There's some really grim stuff, but there's some really funny stuff. It's this great mix of things, and I had a great time doing it. So it took, uh, we looked, worked on it for probably eight, nine, ten months, I guess, over the course of a good chunk of one year. Um, got it all done, came out, uh, did well. But mostly, um, I was just thrilled to be doing work with Frank, and I... I, I I like. I tried to work in my career. I tried to work with people I thought were good writers, and that was one of the times that worked out. And I've I've been very lucky, but it worked out great that time around. So revisiting it now, um, what do you think about? Do you look back at your work and you think it still holds up? And do you think Frank's work still holds up? Oh sure. I look at it now and go, oh crap! I can't draw like this anymore. Jeez, you know, I, oh yeah, look how good this stuff was. That's really annoying. I thought I thought it actually held up really well. I hadn't looked at it in a long time. I hadn't read it in a long time. And so I went back and reread it. We were a guy to scan all the artwork. So scanning the artwork and reading everything, and, and then looking through the PDFs and trying to make sure everything was you know squared away. Um, I thought it came out great. I, I went back and read it. I mean, I'm you know maybe I don't know if the story. I can't tell anymore. There may be different ways of storytelling now, visually in comics and modern guy. I'm not a modern guy anymore. I'm one. Says he putting his hand on the interviewer's shoulder. But but basically, uh, I thought it held up remarkably well. Uh, one of the things that's very funny about the actual book. That was in 91, 92, thereabouts, when they weren't doing bleed pages very much in comics, which means the artwork goes off the edge of the paper and they trim it. Back in the early days in comics, 70s, 80s, you couldn't do that. The companies didn't want you to bleed stuff. I'm told it costs more money. Since the printer had to trim the book anyway, I kind of wonder about that. But I don't know. I don't know the answer. But nobody did bleeds much back then. And, but this was a time when that was starting to be allowed. So for that book, I did bleeds. But nowadays, we all have pages that are sized either for non-bleed or bleed art on the same sheet of drawing paper. So it's all worked out carefully. Back then, nobody had any idea. As a result, I had no idea. So there were some places where I don't want to do bleeds everywhere. I want to use bleeds as part of the storytelling. So if I've got a panel that's bleeding... I want it to bleed because this. I want it to make it look like it's larger than the picture can actually hold, or there's some moment where I really want to emphasize about having it go everywhere. I mean, I really, everything I do is is really based on trying to tell a better story. So 
in this case, I would sort of choose a panel, like a one panel on a page, upper right-hand panel. But I didn't know how far to draw the artwork out to make sure it would trim, and nobody really knew. So I was working on 14 by 17 sheets of paper on a 10 by 15 live art line, and I would draw all the way out to the edge of the sheet and the, up, the north top and the bottom. So that book is enormous because they had to print the whole thing big enough to get all this artwork. And there are actually a couple of pages where I would tape additional strips of paper on and do a little more drawing to make sure it really went everywhere. Well, those, they've actually reproduced small in the back of the book, the complete art. They couldn't do a book that was big enough to hold all that stuff, but they've reproduced those pages complete, but in small reproductions, so you can at least see what all the drawing was about. So the way I did the, chose to do the drawing 20 years ago, in a sense, dictated Dark Horse being stuck having this enormous book, which I was thrilled by. Because I thought they did a fantastic job with it, and I was thrilled that they chose to do it that way. There are a couple of gatefolds in it as well from stuff that I did large, uh, double-page spreads, and they've done as gatefolds so none of the art gets lost in the gutter of the book. You can open it up and see the entire, because the original drawings are giant drawings, so it worked out great. Yeah, I mean, they do a great job with the with these kind of special editions and everything. They do the beautiful packaging and, and everything. And the, and the, the, the. Here's the other thing I'll tell you. I thought was very cool. They went, they did good. Now I will say, Mike Richardson worked. I don't know for how long trying to get the rights squared away because after that book was done back in the early '90s, the rights split up and went all. Your one company got Robocop, maybe or whatever it was, and they've all been different places all these years. So Mike spent, as far as I'm, I'm well, Mike told me this. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it probably is true. He spent a lot of time trying to get the rights all squared away in order to be able to do this because there was no reprint of the book back at the time the rice disappeared and it couldn't be done so they had this book all squared away they got it squared away they decided to go back and reprint the original as well in the original color well when that book was done the original color and I've seen I've seen misapprehensions of this on the web after the reprint came out what happened was the first couple of issues came out and that was early computer days in color. And nobody knew what to do with color. You know, they knew how to run computers, didn't know color as well. And so the color in the first two issues is not the best coloring I ever got. It's computer color, but it needed. And after the two issues, Frank and I kind of got together and said, you know, we really need to get something that's what we do and to get really good color on this. And Steve Olaf, who was running a company called Ole Optics, the first guy, I think, who really had done his own coloring with, you know, real color, I mean, painting and, and water, all that stuff, and learned computers. So he had a good, he worked for Howard Shaken as an assistant, he had a good color sense, and he understood computers. He founded a company called Ole Optics, which as far as I know was the first computer company. It was a freelance company. Companies went to them to get color done. I knew Steve. So, and the thing about having Frank on your side, it's like having the 500-pound gorilla in the room on yours, in your room. So... I, we told Dark Horse, we're finding somebody else to do this. I called Steve up. I said, look, Steve, got this book. It was due pretty rare. There's not much time. Got to be colored. Would you guys be able to color? Would you be able to color these last two issues? Steve colored it. They're beautiful. We got, there was at least one letter, maybe more, that came in and said, wow, you know, Walt Simonson's drawing really improved with issue three. <laughs> Walt Simonson's drawing didn't change very much with issue three, but their coloring changed enormously. So... What happened is for this reprint, this new edition, I got a hold of Steve with Dark Horse's permission. They were very generous. And we had Steve recolor the first two episodes. The color in chapters three and four is his original coloring. We were able to have the same hand color the entire book. So in a sense, it's been remastered about half, but it's been remastered to make it consistent. And I could not be more thrilled. I could not be more delighted. With that guy right over there with the white hair. See that guy? <laughs> 
That guy right there. I like I like the choices that guy made, <laughs> letting me get new coloring on the first two Robocops, Terminators. Thanks, pal. He's in the middle of another interview and stuff. He's doing all this business. He's stuck. <laughs> but that was it was awesome. So so I so in general, I mean it took twenty years to get a reprint of that book out, and I could not be more delighted at the way it all came together and the way the two books, the original color reprint and the art gallery edition have come to look. I'm just thrilled. Awesome, awesome. And I know you say you're not a you're not a modern guy anymore, but um, <laughs> I've been a modern guy. In a <laughs> but um, I got to tell you, um, obviously it's a Mighty W. But uh, Ragnarok, is, uh, uh, the first issue was fantastic, and I, I, I want to ask about um, that book and the, and the story behind it, and, and maybe pitch it to people because if they don't know what it is, um, what it's like. All right. Uh, second issue is out now. Came out yesterday. Um, here's the deal on that. Scott Dimbier is a close friend of mine. He worked for Wildstorm as their head editor, their, their not group editor, I'm editor in chief. And then they got bought by DC, became their group editor for Wildstorm for a number of years. Went to work for IW some years back, left DC. And when he was at Wildstorm on its own, 15, 16, 17 years ago, we were talking one day. He said, How about I'd like to do a creator owned book on, based on Norse mythology? And I've been a Norse myth, myth fan since I was a kid, long before I discovered Marvel's Thor as a reader. So I said, oh, sure, I'd love to. I've got some stuff to finish. Let me finish it up. I'll get back to you. Fifteen years later, I got back to him. I finished everything up. And I'd had some ideas. I talked to Scott about them. And for those who haven't seen the book, it's out now, so I don't feel I'm giving too much away. The, the deal is that Ragnarok, which is the twilight of the gods, in Norse mythology, unlike a lot of other world mythologies, the gods die at the end of time. There's a great battle. The enemies of the gods all come together. My favorite bit, there's a ship, Nagelfar, which is built of the toenails and fingernails of dead men, and it sails from hell with all these awful evil guys on it, and the world serpent and Fenris Wolf and all of these guys break loose, and they all meet the gods in a great battle plane, and they have a great battle, and everybody dies. And in the end, fire, Surtur beats the guy, yes, he beats Frey, I think, but he throws fire across the nine worlds. Everything burns, everything goes up in a huge conflagration. The earth sinks below the ocean, the stars fall from the skies. Everything's like nothing for a while. And then after a while, the earth kind of rises up again. It's green. A man and a woman have survived. The children of the gods have survived in the highest halls of Asgard. And Balder rises up from hell from where he was the dead. And things kind of start over again. Maybe even evil comes back. Well... I'm taking part of that story. My story is that Ragnarok has already happened, but none of the rest of that stuff did. What actually happened in Ragnarok, the real Ragnarok in my story, is that when the gods all gathered to fight their enemies, the enemies all gathered, Thor wasn't there. Nobody knew where he was. In the myths, he fights the Midgard serpent, who is so huge, he encircles the world under the ocean. And so, since nobody's going up against the Midgard serpent, in the end, the bad guys win. And they kill the gods, and they survive. The only guy, the only bad guy, doesn't make this garm. He's a giant wolf. He fights Tyr. Tyr, the one-handed, but Tyr's very tough. He kills Garm. Garm kills him. But all the other great enemies still survive. Centuries pass. Oh, and because the world is what it is, because the gods are gone and everything's out of balance, the nine worlds have collided into a vast land. The sun and the moon were eaten by these giant wolves that pursued them. The wolves die, fall to earth. The sun and the moon are inside these giant wolf carcasses. This twilight light ranges across the, the dusk lands, and the great enemies are now in charge, and they've carved out their own kingdoms. It's kind of feudal, and man, what men are left are the slaves and serfs of the bad guys, and things are pretty crummy. And hundreds of years go by. And, and at that time, 
in the first two issues of Ragnarok, of the book called, I'm calling Ragnarok, Thor comes back. We don't know where he's been. Well, we sort of begin to figure out where he's been if you read the comic books. But he doesn't know why he was there. Something's happened to him. He comes back not really knowing what has occurred. But he's not a dumb guy. He's a little temperamental. He has a temper. But he figures it out. Not all but the end of the second issue. But the end of the third issue, which will come out in a couple of months, he'll have, he'll have a lot of backstory. What's And the reader will as well as a result. But essentially he goes back to what's left of Asgard finds the body of his wife, his children, all, everybody's just gone. So he puts together a giant funeral pyre, gathers all the remains, can't find the most of the gods. They're back out on the battle plane, they're dust, they're just long gone. But he puts the battle, he puts the a funeral pyre together, lights it with lightning, which I think is going to probably be eternal lightning. It's this crackle of lightning above what's left of Asgard forever. That's like issue six, so I'm giving some stuff away. <laughs> but basically, he picks up his hammer, and he goes out into the dusk lands to find the great enemies, and as I've said elsewhere, discuss with them the matter of all things. And that's what my book, the first six or seven issues, will be a story arc that will set all that up, and Thor will walk out into the dusk lands, and then it's, it's his travels across the lands, in, in some ways, in, maybe inspired by, to some extent, not like it, I hope, by the time I'm done, but not unlike Lone Wolf and Cub, where that's really the Lone Wolves. I mean, he's fighting against the Agu clan and that, but it is one man's struggle against a vast horde of enemies. In the same way, this is kind of that, a setup, where I've, I have some regular characters I'll be introducing. I've, I've already, it's not clear, I've read some, I read some web reviews, and I was, you know, usually Simonson has some subplots he puts in, and I don't see those in here, and in fact, there's a whole subplot in the first issue that I don't do much with it, but that's, it's actually a whole thing that's going to be ongoing for the foreseeable future down the road once I sort everything out. So I, I have already begun to sow the seeds of my subplots, but I'm trying to make it too obvious to start with. I'd like to surprise, I mean, it's one of the things I find tough in the modern world in comics, and I just there's nothing to do about it, is because of previews, because of the advanced sales of comics in, at comic shops. I and mean, this is that's where the industry is. When I bought comics, I bought Thor. The second issue of Thor I bought, Thor it was a Journey of Mystery 121. Thor got I was fighting the Absorbing Man. It was the Absorbing Man's return, and they fought. And at the end, they're fighting, and this little kid runs out on the street. And Thor goes, "Oh my gosh, a little kid!" Oh, he says it fancier, but really, he picks the kid up and moves the little child aside. And the Absorbing Man gets his wrecking ball, wham, gets him in the back and knocks him, and goes, "Ha ha! I've beaten Thor. No one else." And I'd only I'd read two Marvel comics that, but that was my second Marvel comic, so I had no idea how this stuff worked. I completely freaked out, and then I couldn't find the next issue. And well, now. How would you not know what's going to happen like five issues down the road? Because you'd spin previews. It's, everybody has to advertise it. They have to promote it. They have to sell it. They've got to order it. And you want to know what's going on in order to do that. So it's, very, it's, it's a different kind of thing. I still like the idea that the next issue I went, oh, my God, what happened? And then, and then what did happen was I finally got the issue. Thor, the splash is the, the absorbed man looking at the camera raving about how he's beaten Thor. And Thor is already standing up and says, doesn't he suspect I was merely stunned? And I went, oh, really? I thought he was going to be really, you know. But I didn't know how comics worked back then. So, But I, I sort of miss the surprise that you would get from reading a book you knew nothing about, but you trusted the author and the artist and you read it, and you read it on a regular basis. And I, there's nothing to do about that now, but I still try to write as if my audience is going to be surprised. So... I'll do what I can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with you, too. We've talked about it several times, but it seems like 
every big storyline that's supposed to be uh, dramatically important is is spoiled months and months in advance. The, the, you know, the death of characters, big changes because they need to sell the books, and it's unfortunate because I'd like to be able to read a series that I'm reading and be surprised and, and shocked and, and enthralled. So I try not to even look at that stuff as much as possible. You know, I hadn't thought about this. Maybe what I'll do from now, I'll write the ad copy for Scott for the upcoming issues. Maybe I'll just lie. I'll start writing. I'll start writing stuff that has no, a paragraph has nothing to do with the action. I hadn't thought about that before, but I'll, I'll have to give this some thought. Maybe I'll talk to Scott when I get home. Like the Christopher Nolan of the of the the comic book world. Um, two more things I want to ask you before before we uh, let you go. Um, I this is a couple of years ago now, but I was really really taken by your work with Mark Wade on um, uh, on the Indestructible Hulk. Um, how did that come about, and what was it like coming back to that character that you that you made huge, huge leaps and bounds with, and are so famous for writing? You know, it was fun I, when I when I left my contract. I was working at DC at contract for a long time. When I left that and began doing other stuff, I want one of the things I wanted to do was work with other writers who I had not had a chance to work with because they weren't working at DC or whatever. So I did a six issue Avengers arc with Brian Bendis. These are friends of mine, but guys I haven't had a chance. And Mark and I wanted to work together for a long time. Mark called me up out of the blue and said, I'd like to do an issue of The Indestructible Hulk with the Hulk in Jotunheim in the land of the giants. I said, hey, sure, I'd love to do it. It'd be great. One issue? Yeah, no problem. So we're getting working on it, and suddenly Mark, and I suddenly I tell Mark, you know, we're in Jotunheim. It'd be kind of fun if it was Thor was in there somewhere. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Said, yeah, that'd be great. And then I said, you know, it'd be kind of a cool, it's like the old Thor, the one that I know, the old, not, I mean, not that the one that they've got now isn't really neat looking. I thought Olivia did a fabulous job designing him, but I think that's my guy is that old guy. And Mark said, yeah, sure, we can do that. And I said, you know, we're going to need more room for this. And so by the time we were done, I talked him to three issues, putting Thor in the book, and we just had a great, great time. So it was really, it was a delight to go back and revisit a character, I, an old friend. Um, and, and lastly, I want to ask, um, obviously, you're the man who brought in Beta Ray Bill. You're the man who made Thor a frog. <laughs> what, uh, what has been your reaction to the, the new change of Thor? <laughs> <laughs> haven't had a chance to read it. I haven't read any of Jason's stuff. Um, but here's my thought about that. I mean, I read, yeah, I, I think it's very obvious. Yeah, well, you know, Simon's never been to a frog. And I think, that's, you know, I, I don't know about comparing frogs and girls. That sounds like, I'm not even going to go there. That just sounds like a really bad idea to begin with. But my thought about any books like that is this. I've read a lot of really good things about his run on Thor. I've seen a lot of stuff on the web. Well, this is the best stuff since Simonson. This is better than Simonson. If it is, great. That's, I think it's fantastic. But I've, a lot of guys who've loved what he's done. And so my feeling is, and trust the writer. See where it goes. I mean, if he's, you know, he can't surprise you by, you know, having it happen when you don't know about it because it's obviously out there already. But I just think, you got to write who you like. you got to go with it. You just have to go, you know, not every writer writes a fabulous story every time. They don't hit a home run every time. But they hit a lot of home runs. you got a good writer. you got a lot better chance of having a neat story. And the thing about this that I really like is, even though there have been some kind of girl Thors, sort of, everybody lists all the ones. I don't remember all of them. I don't care anymore. It's not the same thing as in the book. But... It takes, it's not unlike the frog story that I did in this sense. It goes somewhere the book hasn't gone before. And that's, boy, you got a comic that's been running for 40, 50 years. That is hard to do. Even when I did Thor in 83, the book had been running for 20 years at the time. And my thought was, I'd like to tell a story no one's told before. And that's why I had the idea to pick, somebody else picks the hammer up. They haven't really done it. Loki picked the hammer, held the hammer once on one of Jack and Stan's issues because I think they forgot that nobody could. Well, Stan wrote it, so he said, oh, well, I've got some extra power from the Norn Queen. Said, I'm sorry, that's just not going to work. You know, that's, the hammer doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. But I invented a character from scratch who's designed to pick up the hammer. 
but it, because no one had done it before, meant there were a lot of upset people, and that was right before you could really knew what was happening in books months down the road. So it worked out very well, and people, I had a lot of crabby people, a lot of people were thrilled about it. And when I talk, my stories get talked about now, I get three of my old stories talked about if someone brings them up to me now. One's the Beta Ray Bill stuff, one's the Thor Frog, one is the death of Scourge, the executioner's death in hell. Those are the three stories I hear about most. And the frog story, at the time I did it, got a lot of ambivalent mail. I didn't get a lot of negative mail, but I got I got about half the letters were, I'm not sure I'm supposed to take this. Is this supposed to be a funny story? Is this and it was really a parody of my own work. It was a parody of epic fantasy with the frog and rat war. There's a little Aristophanes mixed in there with the birds, the frogs, that kind of stuff. So I just think that if you've got a really good writer doing something and he's going to take a book somewhere you haven't gone before, you should damn well get on there for the ride. That's exactly what you should be doing. Great advice, great words. Walt, this has been an absolute thrill uh, for me. Um, make sure you guys pick up Ragnarok. Make sure you pick up Robocop versus Terminator. And the Star Slammers is back out on the reprint. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So check those out. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. It's been my pleasure. We're going to keep you quieter next time. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> what a chatterbox. That's, that's me. Yeah.